Welcome to the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal Author Insights Podcast. I am Dr. Matthew Wappet. I'm the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal Editor-in-Chief and the Executive Director of the Utah State University Institute for Disability Research Policy and Practice. It's my privilege to host this podcast. Uh, this podcast is called Author Insights because it gives us a chance to visit individually with the authors from the most recent issue of the DDNJ Journal and gives us a chance to get to know them a little better, get some insights into who they are and why they do what they do. Each episode of this podcast is structured as an informal conversation uh, with the authors and it gives us a chance to, as I said, look at their research and their article in a little different way, a more informal way. But we also like to include some fun behind the scenes insights on the process of designing, implementing, analyzing, writing up research. But we also talk about insights into what motivates these authors, where they get their ideas from, and why they do what they do. I think most importantly, the big reason that we launched this podcast was to increase the accessibility of the articles and the content in the journal. Uh, the launch of the podcast is and was both <laughs> is part of our ongoing commitment to increasing the accessibility of this journal for a wider readership. Not everyone has the time to sit down and read an entire article these days. And uh, some people can't read or don't want to read. Um, and more and more people are choosing to get their information through podcasts, audiobooks, and alternative methods these days. So the launch of this podcast means that you, your colleagues, your friends, uh, really anybody can access DDNJ's content while you're on the go, and you can share it more readily across social media and other online platforms. Now, we recognize that it's important to present our information through a wide range of media, and we hope that this podcast will provide another alternative to access the important information that's published within the pages of our journal. So anyway, if you wanna learn a little bit more about DDNJ, you can learn more and see the latest issue of the journal at the DDNJ website, which is digitalcommons, all one word, .usu.edu backslash DDNJ. And you can download podcast transcripts in English and Spanish and learn more about our guests at the Institute for Disabilities website, which is idrpp.usu.edu backslash about backslash developmental hyphen disabilities hyphen network hyphen journal, or just go to idrpp.usu.edu and you can go under the about tab and you'll see the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal podcast tab there uh, or menu item there. So anyway, go check it out. Okay, well, with all that out of the way, I wanna jump into today's conversation. Today, we are talking with Tabitha Pacheco from the Utah State Board of Education and Dr. Robert Morgan from Utah State University. Tabitha, Dr. Morgan, and Dr. Michelle Azat were authors on an article entitled Collaboration Between Secondary Special Education Teachers and Community Rehabilitation Service Providers, a focus group analysis in the spring 2022 issue of the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal. Uh, in our conversation today, we focus on the importance of collaboration 
and communication in the provision of pre-employment transition services. And we talk a little bit more about pre-employment transition services, pre-ETS as it's known, and some of the history of the Workforce Innovations, Innovation and Opportunity Act or WIOA. So anyway, if that's all mumbo jumbo to you, we'll help clear some of that up in this conversation. So by way of background, uh, Tabitha Pacheco is the lead author on this article and will be uh, joining us here. Tabitha is a veteran educator with classroom experience in public charter and digital education settings uh, and where she served as a teacher, an instructional coach, a mentor, special education director, and an educational consultant. In addition to her classroom experience, Tabitha serves on several boards and is the director of the Utah Teachers Fellows Program, working with educators across the state of Utah to develop their leadership and policy expertise. Currently, Tabitha works with the Utah State Board of Education as the special education mentor specialist and in 2013, she was awarded the Utah State Office of Education Significant Disabilities Teacher of the Year Award for outstanding leadership and commitment to students with disabilities. Tabitha earned her master's in education in special education from Utah State University uh, under the tutelage of Dr. Robert Morgan and is a national board certified teacher in exceptional needs. Now, uh, Dr. Bob Morgan is also joining us today. Uh, Bob is a professor in the Department of Special Education and Rehabilitation Counseling at Utah State University. He is the director of the Master's Program Committee and the Severe Disabilities Licensure Program. Uh, Bob worked in classrooms for elementary and secondary age students as a school psychologist and a behavior specialist for 12 years. His research here at the university focuses on transition of students with disabilities from school to adult services or employment settings. He's authored three books, six book chapters, and nearly 100 peer-reviewed journal articles. He has served as a principal investigator for 41 grants, totaling over $12 million, many of those focused on employment and transition. Uh, and Bob is the principal investigator on the doctoral leadership program in interdisciplinary transition at Utah State University right now. Bob is also a consulting editor and reviewer for several refereed journals, including Career Development and Transition for Exceptional Individuals, the Journal of Vocational Rehabilitation, and Teaching Exceptional Children. So we're really excited to have Tabitha and Bob with us today. They are both exceptionally well qualified to talk about this topic. And so without further ado, here is my conversation with Tabitha and Bob. All right, Tabitha and Bob, thanks for joining us today. Um, one of the purposes of this podcast is to make research a little more accessible and to put a personal face on it. So. Tabitha, why don't we start with you here, but tell us a little bit about your background and the path that brought you to this project. Sure. So I am a longtime special education teacher, special education coordinator, and have worked in the classroom for many, many years. And I wanted to continue my own professional growth and knowledge in the field. And so I um, 
applied and was accepted to be in the master's program at Utah State University. And Dr. Morgan was my advisor and he's been my mentor and I was privileged to take many courses from him and then have him, of course, advise me as I started doing research. And so that is what has led me to this particular research project and article. Perfect. Well, well, Bob, I'm going to, I'm going to flip this question a little bit. You've done transition for your whole career, it seems like. So tell us a little bit about what got you into transition and made you so passionate about it. Well, I, I'm a professor in the Department of Special Education and Rehabilitation Counseling at Utah State. And I developed a, a master's of education and master's of science program uh, with a concentration in transition from school to adulthood. Uh, as a part of that program, students were required to do a culminating research project, a, a, a thesis. Um, and in the case of Tabitha, she was uh, very interested in um, conducting research on interagency collaboration um, among professionals and parents and self-advocates because um, interagency collaboration is so crucial uh, to the success of youth and young adults who are making the, the, the transition from school to, to adulthood. Um, when a team of collaborators work together, uh, transition can be successful. If they're not working together, um, youth and young adults really struggle and their, and their parents struggle. So this was a, so it was a opportune um, uh, occasion to do, to do research on interagency collaboration. Perfect. So the, the article um, that we mentioned earlier, but is actually entitled Collaboration Between Secondary Special Education Teachers and Community Rehabilitation Service Providers, a focus group analysis is in volume two, issue two of the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal. Tabitha, can you give us a quick two minute summary of the article? Sure, so the article um, talks about the current research and talks about the current research as far as collaboration goes between schools and then community providers and what's currently happening and what's been done in other states. And then as a continuation of that, a look into what is currently happening in our states. And so we held several focus groups with teachers and then the community rehabilitation providers that are partnered with their school district to see um, what's happening in their schools and their districts. Do they know what each other's doing? What are the current collaboration practices? What barriers are there? Um, and then discussion in the research of what, what we found from that and how we can make improvements in our state to deepen that collaboration and ultimately improve outcomes for students. Perfect. So one of the, one of the terms that comes up in your article is pre-ETS. And those of us who work in transition or are familiar with it know what pre-ETS is, but give us a little bit of background on pre-ETS. What is pre-ETS? Where did it originate? Um, what is PRIETS about? Sure. So PRIETS stands for PRE, and then it's ETS, Employment Transition Services. And it's those skills and practices that individuals need to be employed. 
And so there's opportunities for them to job shadow, to um, have practice in a work setting. There's all sorts of skills, you know, um, that they can practice, you know, resume building or just strengths finders. What are they interested in? And starting those services really early when they're 14 years old, instead of waiting until it's like, well, you're graduating in a week. Like, do you know what you want to do? So really starting those early and providing real life opportunities to practice those skills so that they are ready. Yeah. So where did the, where, where did Priets begin, Bob? Where did this term kind of come from? When did we start doing this sort of pre-employment transition service work here in the United States? Okay, good. Um, Priets was a part of the, the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act, which was a reauthorization of the Rehabilitation Act. It, uh, the, the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act, or WIOA, uh, was passed in 2014 and required that um, 15% of, uh, of rehabilitation money allocated to the state had to be set aside for pre-eds uh, for students ages 14 through 21. So um, it, it, it was a nice opportunity to, uh, to focus on transition services for, for youth and young adults that heretofore hadn't been there. Um, and so it, it, uh, it, it, it authorized vocational rehabilitation to either provide the service directly to students ages 14 through 21, or to contract with community rehab providers or CRPs to come in and deliver the services to, to students. Um, in most cases, CRPs deliver the services, I think, um, and they come into schools uh, to work with students or take them into the community to, uh, to, to provide the services. So the concept of Priets, it sounds like, is relatively recent if it really just emerged through the reauthorization of WIOA, is that correct? So we've been doing transition for a long time, but by that name, I guess. <laughs> uh, um, um, I'll take that one. Um, that's a good po point, Matt. Um, uh, teachers were providing transition services to students long before pre-eds, but it was really kind of an extension of their, their already busy um, set of job responsibilities. Uh, it, it, it was difficult for them to get into the community. They, they had all kinds of transportation issues and that sort of thing. And so Priets really um, uh, provided um, additional opportunities for service provision beyond the teacher, which again is all the more reason for inter-agency inter collaboration. So that actually sets up my next question really, really well. Um, why are, I mean, the focus of this is on collaboration. Why are collaborative practices so important to a successful transition experience for students with disabilities, Tabitha? Yeah, so I taught special education, high school, uh, high school special education transition for many years and thought I was pretty good. <laughs> I thought I was a great teacher, um, but I did have so much to learn and I wasn't aware 
of how much I didn't know. Um, I was, for many students, I said we were providing pre-eds, but mostly that just looked like handing them off to Voc Rehab and sort of being like, well, I guess they're getting it. Like, I hope it happens. Um, when I was doing my master's program with Dr. Morgan, one of my uh, cohort, my colleagues, she was a pre-eds provider. And so I got to learn a lot from her. And I was like, you do what? You do what? And same thing with me as a special education teacher. She's like, wait, you guys are doing that in schools? Like, I didn't know you guys did that. So we were doing it. And that is sort of what sparked my interest in this is really being like, wait a minute. But neither one of us who are really qualified in our fields have no idea what each other is doing. And we're repeating things or we're making more work for ourselves than is needed. And so as part of my master's program, I did an internship with a CRP for nine weeks. And so I got to act as a pre-eds provider or worked for a pre-eds provider and got to visit students' homes and get to do all of the intake surveys. I got to go to all of the job sites. And I learned so much that I was like, man, I wish every single teacher knew what pre was and what's happening because we could be doing so much together instead of working on our own and so that is really what sparked my interest of, I don't know, my own self-interest of like, I want to know more about this. I want more happening in my own school. How do I make this a reality? So, so as you did this project, as you kind of dug into it and really looked at um, what were some of the supports and some of the barriers, what, what are the big barriers that you discovered to these collaborative interactions? Um, and, and kind of second to that, and I guess you could answer these together or separately, what, what were some of your recommendations for addressing those barriers? Uh, a big thing was communication. Uh, everyone is busy and they're doing the best they can at their own job and are very student focused as we should be. Um, and so sometimes we forget to reach out to the other providers and share information or what we're working on, or we think, oh, I've done my part, like I've done my progress report to the student and their family, and maybe not thinking about communicating those progress reports to the other individuals who are working. And some of the inherent communication of not working in the same building as that other organization, it wasn't as easy as just walking next door to the teacher or even like um, related service providers, you know, the speech therapist who are coming to the school building and you're seeing them we might not always see the Prius providers. And so it just takes a little extra effort and initiative to say, hey, well, how can we communicate best about this? Like, can we share some, you know, emails about this, some lesson plans? Can we coordinate on a unit we're doing? And so communication was a barrier that we found in, you know, the national research that's out there. And then from the focus groups, like communication was a, a big thing. Like people just were not talking. Were there others outside of communication? Yeah, of course. And there's also some red tape issues. Paperwork okay. becomes a big thing <laughs> of like, okay, well, do we have forms consent sign that we can communicate okay. with each other? You know, can I share my information with you? Is that allowed? If the parent signed it for workforce or for vocational rehabilitation, does that also cover us? And so some of those very real concerns and then a lot of unknowing of like, oh, I don't, I mean, maybe like, and so having to sort of work through some of those um, legal things, you want to make sure that you're doing things the right way. Time, of course, 
is was a huge issue of we want to communicate we want to look at each other's paperwork when do we have time to do this like it was you know took a lot of collaboration and scheduling just to all show up at the same IEP meeting for one hour how are we also supposed to find time to meet just with each other in addition to the teaching we're doing and the services we're providing to collaborate on things so 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 really as I've listened to you talk a lot of this is about um, people are busy whether you're a a CRP or whether you're a special education teacher or have some other role in the system. Uh, but in order to make this work, people have to make it a priority. Have, people have to be willing to dedicate time to yes. that communication and to jumping through. I mean, as with any program, right, there's hoops, there's red tape, there's forms, there's things that you've got to do. And that has to be a priority. I don't know. Bob, do you have anything to add to that in terms of the barriers? Uh, in terms of barriers, yeah, teachers are are very busy, six, eight, ten hours a day. And uh, in the old days, I used to approach them and say, um, you know what, you need to do something else. You need to focus on transition from school to adulthood and get into the community and do community-based training and do social skills training and this, that, and the other. And they just kind of looked at me and, and their eyes glossed over. Um, Priets, I think, reduces some of that barrier by making available CRPs, community rehabilitation providers. And those are professionals who work in the community with students and young adults uh, doing transportation training and job shadowing and um, job coaching, job placement. They talk to employers and do all the things that teachers don't have time to do. So it's really a, um, a great opportunity. It's a way of reducing barriers by um, bringing um, to the fore a CRP who has those skills and does direct instruction in the community. And so that person needs to work directly with the teacher and the voc rehab person becomes more of a contractor or a go-between. So uh, it's the, uh, this was a nice way of looking closely at the at the barriers and how to eliminate those barriers. I also think we talked about this earlier that Prius is a newer mm -hmm. initiative, newer funding, and so a lot of teachers just didn't even know that it was available or how to access it or how to refer their students to it. When we first began this research in 2019, I think there was only three CRP, or not CRP, but pre-ETS providers in the state. So that has grown, there's many more now. And so it was very limited, the areas that it covered and the uh, districts, the LEAs that were partnering with mm -hmm. CRPs. And so they're just teachers that didn't know it was available. And luckily though, it has grown a lot. And, uh, teachers are more aware. A lot of that I can contribute to Dr. Morgan and his work with the Transition Institute and UTAT and trying to make resources more available and help make sure that teachers know what is available to their students. So this is a question that I didn't give you in the, in the preliminary, but I want to ask it anyway. Because <laughs> you mentioned the dates when you were doing this in 2019. Did your research and did any of your work overlap with the COVID pandemic? 
Luckily, it sort of wrapped up by the end of 2019. Okay. There was some additional uh, like follow-up things we wanted to do with the participants, both the CRP providers and the teachers that we had wanted to do like the end of March, which was right when everything hit in 2020. Yeah. And so I couldn't even contact them. Schools were closed, the, you know, the CRP, they were closed, everyone was closed, unavailable. And so some additional things we would have liked to have done in person or Zoom or just connecting with people hit during a really crazy time. And so some of our follow-up questions and information were done via email or surveys, but we were able to get it all. It was just like a, you know, for all of us, like a, what is happening in the world? So it worked out. So I'm going to, so I'm going to build on that just a little bit because I like to give you surprises. Um, (laughs) So did the COVID pandemic, I mean, we're essentially two years into it now. Did the COVID pandemic change the nature of these pre-ed services and that relationship between the schools and the CRPs, or has it continued to move forward relatively smoothly? I mean, were, were there, I guess the question is really, did, did COVID impact any of this and create any unique challenges that maybe you've seen since you're working in this field? Good question. Tabitha, do you want to take that or, or I will? I say all my observations would be very anecdotal, especially yeah. since yeah. I'm not at, even in a school right now, I'm working at the state office. So perhaps Bob, you can share your experience from the work you're doing with like the UTAD and Transition Institute of how people have been able to collaborate. I think it changed pre-eds, at least temporarily. Um, I think community rehab providers um, having been no longer able to work in the schools with COVID, um, some of them resorted to, to online instruction, um, which is very different from going into the community and, and learning job skills. So it, it, it was probably something that uh, really limited students who were in transition at that time Hopefully, we're able to recoup some of that now, but but yeah, I think it was it was definitely a a a, a limitation in terms of pre-ed's provision, much as it was a limitation to education in general. We've heard that reflected across not just this system but all systems. It really it it changed it, but we're kind of not. It's still moving forward. <laughs> this was a focus group study. Um, and with one of the purposes of this podcast is to kind of put a fun human face on the research process. And when you're doing any research, there's a whole bunch that happens behind the scenes that doesn't that isn't necessarily reflected in the final write-up. So one of the questions that we like to ask is, if there was a memorable story or event that occurred as you worked on this project that comes to mind? Uh, I think of court, like, so the focus groups was partnering the teachers at the same school that the CRPs are providing services to. And mm-hmm. it was always shocking that they'd show up at this focus group and they, they had never met each other. They had never talked to each other and they had been working with the same students for years sometimes. And so that was always like an embarrassing sort of awkward of like, oh, 
I guess this is an important work because this is embarrassing. Um, and that happened in every focus group, like um, that they were like, nice to meet you for the first time. You know, glad we've been working with the same student for years. Wow. That's, that's pretty telling, I think. <laughs> isn't, isn't that shocking? And, and, and yet, finally, they had a forum uh, where they could meet each other. That's exactly what inter-agency inter collaboration is all about. Yep. So have you found that after the focus groups, that by meeting each other and maybe making that connection, that it changed their communication? And maybe you don't know that follow-up. I'm just curious if that helped. I don't know it, but I hope it. Like at the yeah. end of all the focus groups, there was a lot of, uh, you know, promises of like, okay, like now we have each other's emails and let's make this happen. And so I would hope that that communication continued to happen. Yeah. Hard to communicate if you don't have the other person's email. <laughs> but that's good. That's good. So what, so kind of taking this whole article, kind of taking this whole idea of pre-et secondary transition, what is the take-home message from your article? What do you want readers to remember? Um, I think, number one, the importance of interagency collaboration. Uh, two, like we had talked about, of taking the time to make that interagency collaboration a priority. And I can say from my own experience that it is worth it. It will make your experience and your teaching better and stronger, and it will also improve outcomes for your students through that. So it's it's worth that effort. And it's one of those things, as with any relationship, like once you make the effort to make it happen, then it seems to come a little bit more natural. Like it's just part of your routine. It's not this forced thing anymore. It's just a natural part of your teaching and your collaboration to include that person. So my takeaway would be that there are so many great services in our state, so many really passionate people doing incredible work for students with disabilities and helping them be successful. And so collaborate with them, learn from them, take advantage of the resources that they're providing. So I'm going to throw you a little bit of a secondary curveball here based on that response. I'm sorry, you're giving me some good things to think about. So are there things that schools um, and VR can do to incentivize that collaboration? Do you have any insights on that? Sure, I can tell you some top secret info from the State Office of Education. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe it's not, it's not top secret, but the state has since started a, the STC, the State Transition Collaborative, and it's not run by me, it's run by my colleague, Crystal Emery, where she has brought together all, um, anyone with a stake, who's a stakeholder in transition. So uh, vocational rehabilitation, several community rehabilitation providers, education agencies, you know, DSPD, like all the agencies, and we have monthly meetings and I'm part of the committee. I'm just not leading it. We have monthly meetings and we're working on solving some of these barriers. Like, hey, can we create a common form that says uh, we have permission to talk to each other? And so, you know, looking at all our forms and say, what if we just had one form that signed permission for all of us to talk? And so trying to break down some of those barriers, also learning from each other. And so I think from a big picture level, like at the state, all the agencies are working together to be like, okay, how can we collaborate better? How can we make this easier? 
um, to work together as teams. And so that is happening and it's exciting. And hopefully we will start to see the results of that work, you know, in this next school year and years coming as we make it easier to collaborate. Well, one thing, and I don't know, Bob can probably chime in on this that I've noticed in various programs is that if the state agency, whether that's the State Department of Ed or VR or the, D, the Developmental Disabilities Agency, if they make it a priority and they facilitate high-level conversations, frequently that will trickle down and it creates a culture of collaboration that hopefully goes throughout the system. I don't know, Bob, do you have any insights on that? Yeah, I think that's definitely happening. At, at, you know, it's a relative thing, but on a continuum, I think we're 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 moving towards more and more collaboration. And thank goodness, State Board of Education has taken taken it on to develop forms that everyone uses. Imagine that across all those agencies, um, which is a a, a major undertaking. Uh, but it looks as if school records and records for adults with, in, with disabilities are, of course, confidential. And so um, information cannot be released unless parents or legal guardians uh, provide consent. And I think that's a starting point for uh, creating a form that works for everybody. So uh, more power to that effort. Yeah. So are there, again, another follow-up question. Sorry. <laughs> Keeping you on your toes today. So we, your experience has primarily been here in Utah. Are there other states that have developed a common form and have, have looked at different ways of facilitating collaboration in pre-eds? That's a good question. I'm not really sure. Uh, Tabitha might have some insight on that. I think... Um, Collaboration in general has, has become a priority everywhere because we know from the research that interagency collaboration is, a, is an evidence-based practice. Um, so it leads to improved post-school outcomes. Um, so I think everybody is kind of focusing on collaboration and how they can make it happen. Tabitha, do you want to add to that? I do not know the answer if other states are doing it, but I agree with Bob that it is definitely like the, a hot topic right now, this collaboration and how do we make it happen. And so I know lots of people are working on it within our state. In addition to, you know, this STC, we have the Transition Institute, the Transition Conference, um, the Utah Transition Action Team. We have lots of groups that are working to try to make resources available to students by working with the adults who provide those. So. It's happening. We're working on it and it's, it is making a difference. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So the last two questions are my favorite ones and they totally shift. And you, this is about you as a researcher and everybody who's in this field in disability, special education has a particular reason. So I'm going to ask both of you this question. What motivates you to do this work? Why do you do what you do? Why don't we start with you, Tabitha? Uh, so I always loved working with people and I especially love working with individuals with disabilities or different ways of learning and thinking so that's always been a passion of mine I've always been an advocate and so for me to do the be the best at my job I have to continue developing my own skills and research and stay current on best 
practices. And so I don't think I will ever stop learning and participating in professional learning and furthering my education. Um, but mostly it really is just the love of the people, this, you know, the individuals I'm serving. And I don't think you'll find like a more passionate group of individuals than people who work in education and especially people who work in special education, like just the best people who are trying to make the world a better place. Like it sounds so cheesy, but so true. And I am inspired daily by the people I get to, to work with because everyone's just really trying to make the world a better place. And I love that. So Bob, but let, let me turn to you with that question. You've done this for a few years longer than Tabitha. What, what motivated you to get into this? Why do you do what you do? Well, you know, I guess it sounds cliche, but I wanted to make a difference. Um, and I was so impressed, I guess, early in my career, how people with disabilities had amazing abilities. And all you had to really do was, was get to know them and uh, be a part of their world and, and, and see the things that they were capable of doing. I mean, it was different for each individual, but um, th they had capabilities that most of us didn't see. They were being marginalized and, and, and ostracized for, for reasons that really weren't fair to them because they all had something to contribute. And many of them have learn to become contributing citizens to their community. And it's just a matter of advocating for them and um, helping them out and uh, letting them become what they can become. So uh, uh, it, I'm, I'm, I'm very passionate about it still. And uh, um, going all the way back to my, to my early work in a, in a state institution in, in Kansas, um, it was like, you know, th these are people these are people who can contribute to their community. And it was just a matter of sort of un unlocking that and letting them do what they could do. Yeah. So one of the reasons that we started this podcast was to make research more inclusive and accessible. Not everybody wants to go find an article and read it online. And so we thought, well, if we have more informal conversations, it's going to make these ideas, this research more accessible to a broader audience who may not traditionally go to find an academic journal. So kind of on that note, um, a big focus of the journal has been trying to make research more inclusive and accessible. So the last question that we like to ask is, what is one thing that you've been doing to make your own work more inclusive and accessible? So why don't I start with you, Tabitha, on that one? Uh, so one thing I've been doing and that I regret that I wasn't doing longer and earlier in my career is making sure that the materials I am sharing and producing are 508 compliant and accessible. Mm -hmm. And I think especially as a special educator, that should be something that I'm doing and all of us should be doing all the time. And so making it's just those little things to make things more accessible, whether it is through your professional work, PowerPoints, or even in your personal life on, you know, social media or things like adding that, um, you know, alternate description to your images uh, so that your life and the things that you're sharing out into the world are accessible to everyone. And so that has been a little change that I've made and making sure that I am making um, materials that I share accessible. That's a big one. That's actually a huge one. It's 
I was actually in a meeting this morning and it really is shocking how many materials and conferences and stuff are still being put out that are completely inaccessible in the disability field. And as someone who's now that I'm at the state office, I oftentimes have to vet those PowerPoints and it is a lot of work if someone sends something in that is not 508 compliant to then make it compliant, especially if everything they've submitted is a screenshot. (laughs) So um, yeah, it's a big deal and it's worth making that effort or doing it right or trying to do it to start with so that everyone can access what they need. Yep. Perfect. So Bob, what about you? I can think of several things. Um, One uh, was the creation of something I called the Utah Transition Action Team, uh, which is probably a misnomer, but UTAT um, uh, was started 11 years ago, way back before pre-eds, and it consists of uh, special ed teachers, general ed teachers, career technical education teachers, community rehab providers, folk rehab counselors, parents, self-advocates, people in higher education. I wanted to bring them all together uh, so that we could share information and be inclusive. Um, the, The first meeting involved eight people around a conference table, and that was what, 2011, something like that. Hmm. Um, And now I have a list of 150 some odd people who come together quarterly. Well, I don't get 150, but I might get 60 people together who who share with each other. They just share what each other is doing. And um, it results in the formation of relationships across disciplines, teachers contacting community rehab providers, and, and, and so forth. And that wasn't the case before 2011. People tended to, to work in their silo and go home and, and, and complain about uh, how non-inclusive things were. So that's, that's been something I'd like to continue going forward uh, because it seems to serve a purpose in, in uh, Utah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I think, again, if there's a theme that's come up throughout this, it's the importance of getting people together to talk, that communication, and people talk more when they're together, right? (laughs) And the pandemic has shown we can very easily grow apart and isolate ourselves, but when you're together, communication happens naturally, so that's great. Absolutely. Yeah. Any last thoughts you want to share before we wrap up? Yeah, I'd like to say something. Uh, interagency collaboration is, uh, is more than just getting people together at a meeting. Um, to be really effective, um, every member needs to know the, the, the roles and responsibilities of every other member uh, so that there are no gaps or overlaps um, so, so that things can really get done for, for the student in transition from school to adulthood. Um, and that's what really makes it work, I think, is when um, one can rely on another member of the group to, to carry out certain responsibilities uh, and report back. Tabitha, do you have any last thoughts you want to share? Uh, my last thoughts would just be a sincere thank you to everyone who's doing this work. The teachers 
who are, have dedicated their professional life to helping these students be successful to the CRPs, you know, voc rehab providers, the parents, the individuals doing the work, just a sincere thank you. Cause I know it is a lot and it can be, you know, not only a drain on your time, but, you know, emotional investment in these students and just a thank you for everyone who's doing the work and continuing to want to be better and make these connections and provide opportunities for our students. Yeah. Well, thank you both for your time today. This has been really insightful. It actually makes me want to do a special episode across a few articles where collaboration is a theme and kind of building on what you just ended with there, Bob, with the importance of setting rules and boundaries and responsibilities. And, you know, collaboration is, it doesn't happen um, by accident. It has to be intentional. And so I think there's some really interesting themes and and other areas to dig into here. So maybe we'll get in touch with you and we'll have another panel here in a couple of months. <laughs> but thank you both for your time today. We really appreciate you uh, sharing your insights and we appreciate you submitting to publish in the journal. Thanks for listening to the Author Insights podcast today. We appreciate your support and your interest in our work. Again, as I mentioned earlier, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a rating and a review and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. That is how we get the word out. And that is how we build our listenership is through your help and your willingness to kind of share this information. Uh, you can learn more about the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal at the DDNJ website, which is digitalcommons, all one word, .usu.edu backslash DDNJ. And as I mentioned earlier, you can download podcast transcripts in English and Spanish and learn more about our guests at the Institute for Disabilities website, which is idrpp.usu.edu. Um, so... Uh, this podcast wouldn't happen without a whole host of people helping. This podcast is a production of the Utah State University Institute for Disability Research Policy and Practice, Utah's University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities. And this podcast is produced by Dr. Alex Shewal with transcript and translation support from Mary Ellen Heiner and Martha Reyes. Thanks again for listening. And in the words of Margaret Mead, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed individuals can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. Have a great day, everybody. Mm -hmm.